Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. Good morning. Before we dive into this passage today, let's pray. Our precious Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather here today, to worship you, and to study your word. We ask, Lord God, that you open our hearts and minds as we study your word together, that we may learn what it is that you have for us in this passage. I ask, Lord, that you would speak to each person listening today that they would examine where they are in relation to you and your family of believers, and that we would come to a deeper understanding of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Judges chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. If you didn't bring a Bible of your own, look under the seats in front of you. There's some uh, Bibles that the church has. And if you don't have one, feel free to keep it as our gift to you. Now, the events described in this passage, they took place about 1400 B.C., following the initial conquest of Canaan, but prior to the complete occupation. These events are important because the God who spoke to the children of Israel at that time, he's the same God that we worship today. Okay, 1400 B.C., the initial conquest, the children of Israel, They've crossed the Red Sea. They've been in the desert for 40 years, and, and they've just entered in. They've, they've knocked down Jericho, and um, the initial conquest is pretty much done. Um, those, those events, the things that happened, God is the same. The God that, that was talking to them there is the same God that we're worshiping today. Hebrews 13.8 Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So follow along with me as I read Judges 2, 1 to 13. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I've also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares for you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called the place Bokim, which means weepers. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen the great things that the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim north of Mount Gaash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. 
They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtaroths. The title for today's message, God Has No Grandchildren. Okay, let that sink in for a second. At first glance, that, say, that statement seems a little harsh. God has no grandchildren? Really, who doesn't love grandchildren? I know I do. I'm pretty sure most of the people here do. I've even heard people lovingly joke, wouldn't it be great if we could skip the kids and jump straight to grandkids? <laughs> the reality is that even though we're all made in God's image and God loves the world, we each need to come to Him individually for salvation. We need to make a personal confession of faith, and then we are adopted into the family of God as joint heirs with Christ. The Bible tells us in Romans 8, 16 and 17, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We become children of God, not grandchildren. Grandchildren belong to our children, not us. We have influence over them, but no direct authority. They are the responsibility of their parents, not the grandparents. Children are under the direct authority of their parents and as parents, no, I'm sorry, children are under the direct authority of their parents. That would be us. And as parents, we have the privilege and the responsibility to teach them about God. The Bible tells us in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it's clear. The only way to eternal life is through Jesus. Not your parents, not your pastor, not a priest, not through your heritage, ethnicity, good works, good intentions, or anything else, only through Jesus. God doesn't have grandchildren, but he does have room in his family today for many more children. So verses 1 and 2, they refer to the promise or the covenant where God said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give your ancestors. And I said, I would never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. In this part, the angel of the Lord, okay, there's a little confusion. The angel of the Lord, that may have been God's representative or possibly a pre-incarnation of the Lord himself. That's why he's speaking in the first person. God is reminding them of what he's done and how he keeps his covenants. A covenant, that's a promise. It can be either conditional or unconditional. The covenant that God is referring to is the one he made with Abraham over 500 years earlier. Genesis 17, 7 and 8 says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. 
the whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Now this covenant, it's both conditional and unconditional. The unconditional promise, God will give the land of Canaan to Abraham's descendants, but their peace and joy in the land, that's conditional on their continued obedience. God brought them up out of Egypt into the promised land, but the Israelites, Israelites didn't hold up their end. They were successful in the initial conquest, but they didn't obey God's command to break down the pagan altars. They didn't follow through. They allowed some groups of Canaanites to remain. Now, we all know how important following through with things is in our lives today. Have you ever been to a driving range at a golf course and some helpy helperton next to you says, you know, you can fix that slice if you just follow through. Or with medicine. When you take antibiotics, the instructions say, you must take them all. Even if you feel better in a couple of days, you need to follow through with the full course of treatment. If you don't, the infection will come back stronger than it was before and more resistant to the medicine. The Israelites, they didn't complete what God had instructed them to do when they came into the land. They didn't drive out all the Canaanites. They went from viewing them first as enemies then to neighbors, well, to potential servants, slaves, and then to neighbors. Eventually, they began to intermarry with them, and it became more than just minor compromises in their obedience to God. It eventually became a full abandonment of their worship of God. In Ernest Hemingway's book, The Sun Also Rises, a man is asked, how did you go bankrupt? And he replies, two ways. Gradually, then suddenly. <laughs> As Christians, how do we lose our way with God? Or for that matter, how do we lose our way with anything? At first, gradually, we make little compromises, cut a few corners, skip a few steps. You know how it is. You're having a busy day. Something happens to throw you off your routine, and you decide to skip prayer time or reading your Bible. But you decide maybe... It's okay to stay home on a Sunday. Take some me time. I deserve that. A little here, a little there. It's no big deal, right? Pretty soon, it's been a few days, maybe a few weeks since you've cracked your Bible. And you think, you think, I know it's important. I'll get to it tomorrow or next week as soon as I get this project done or as soon as fill in the blank. Then I'll get back to God you begin to realize that that discomfort that you felt at first, that's dissipated. And now not going to church or reading your Bible has become the new normal. But you know in your heart that's not right. One day you realize your life is way off track and in danger of completely derailing. At that point, you look for something, someone, anything to blame. You cry out in anger or fear or desperation or hopefully, like David did when he was confronted by Nathan, with repentance. Now the Israelites, they were making compromises in the process of driving out the Canaanites. They had decided that if they let a few of them stay, they'd make great servants. 
They could help with the hard work of farming and building cities and homes. If we keep a few of them around, not so many that they'd be a threat, but just enough to work the fields, that would make life so much better for us. You know, who cares if they keep their pagan idols? Let them have their little rituals. It's not a big deal, as long as they do it in the privacy of their own home, right? We've heard that. As long as they do it in the privacy of their own homes and don't interfere with us. But the problem, that's not what God commanded them to do. No matter how convenient it was for the Israelites, it wasn't what they were supposed to do. They thought they knew better than God, that there would be no harm in keeping a few Canaanites around. Well, now the angel of the Lord was here calling them out on their sin. You have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? He knew why they disobeyed. He wasn't looking for an answer. He was probing their hearts. He was telling them, you know you disobeyed me. Why'd you do it? Do you think I wouldn't notice or wouldn't care? Verse 3 tells us the consequences of their failure to keep their end of the covenant. It's where he says, I will not drive them out before you. They'll become traps for you, and their gods will become snares for you. As a result of their sin, not completely driving out the inhabitants of the land and tearing down the pagan idols, God withdrew his, his provision for them. Now, when you're on the wrong path, God doesn't smooth the way for you. But if your path seems smooth, it's probably Satan luring you down his path away from God. When the Israelites were obedient and trusting God, he gave success to their armies and allowed them to defeat their enemies. As a result of their compromises, these little sins, God told them he wouldn't help them anymore. And he warned them that the people that they had allowed to stay would become traps and snares for them. Dale Ralph Davis describes it this way, or describes them. The Israelites at that time, they were, quote, a people clearly successful, though certainly disobedient. Pragmatic success, spiritual failure. A strange but possible combination. So Israel is dominant, if not obedient. She enjoys superiority, even if she does not maintain fidelity. When the angel of the Lord graciously appeared and confronted them in verses 4 and 5, this is how they responded. The people wept aloud. They called that place Bokim, which means weepers. We're weeping. Let's name this place Weepers. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord. Sounds like a good thing. The Israelites understood that they'd been, they'd been disobedient. How did they respond? They weep, they offer sacrifices, and they rename the place. Do they truly repent? Joel, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, tells us what God really wants from us when we repent. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. He wants their hearts. They make a great show of weeping and offering sacrifices, but do they truly repent in their hearts? We don't know for sure. Maybe some did. Maybe many didn't. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a Welsh minister who served in England for over 40 years. He was once accused of encouraging emotionalism in his sermons. And this is how he replied, and I'm not going to do the Welsh accent. <clears throat> it's very easy to make a Welshman cry, but it needs an earthquake to make him change his mind. God doesn't want us to just cry and offer sacrifice. He wants true repentance. Repentance is where the believer turns away from sin. If you just say you're sorry and keep doing the same things, your apology is revealed as meaningless. We can't solve the problem of sin with a simple apology and a few tears. Only Jesus can pay the price for our sin. Unfortunately, it sometimes takes an earthquake in our lives to turn us back to God. You've probably heard it said, there are no atheists in a foxhole. This describes how when faced with extreme stress or fear, an atheist will often cry out to God for help. Sadly, when that danger is past, most forget the promises they made when they were in distress, and they refuse to give credit to God for their rescue. So, how did the Israelites proceed after weeping and offering sacrifices following the admonition from the angel of the Lord? Look at verse 7. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Well, certainly looks like there was repentance in Joshua's generation. They served the Lord as long as those who had experienced the literal salvation of the Lord, their delivery from slavery in Egypt, the initial conquest of Canaan. As long as those men were around to remind them of what God had done, Unfortunately, we're told in verses 10 to 13, the next generation didn't pay attention when they were told about the Lord. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation arose who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done, and they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 13, because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtaroths. Baal and Ashtaroth, those were Canaanite gods, the gods of storm and fertility. And they were common all throughout the Middle East or the Mesopotamian area. The next generation of Israelites, they didn't even pretend to follow the Lord. They just fell in with the local Canaanite people and worshiped their false god. This is what's known as apostasy. That's a word that we've heard a lot, but do we really understand what that means? Apostasy is refusing to continue to follow, obey, or recognize a religious faith, or the abandonment of a previous loyalty, defection. The Israelites refused to continue following, obeying, or even recognizing the faith of their fathers. They abandoned their loyalty to God, and they defected to pagan gods. This is the whole heart of the message here. Verse 7, the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and those that had outlived him and seen the things that God had done. But verse 12, the next generation forsook the Lord. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them and they aroused the Lord's anger. That next generation, they knew about the Lord, but they didn't know him. 
It's like the prophet Eli's two sons in 1 Samuel 2.12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Eli was the prophet who raised Samuel. For sure, his sons had to know who the Lord was, but they didn't fear him. Same thing as Aaron's sons in Leviticus 10, 1 and 2, Nadab and Abihu. They offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. They knew about the Lord. They didn't fear or respect him. There's many examples in the Bible, but understand this. Just because your father was a pastor or a respected member in the church, or maybe your parents baptized you when you were a baby, that doesn't mean you're automatically a Christian. Each person in each generation is judged on their own merits. Dale Ralph Davis explains it like this. This is the, the next generation. It means that they had no regard for or they cared nothing for Yahweh. Yahweh and his works didn't matter to them, had no influence over them. The Bible is clear. Amnesia produces apostasy. Herbert Wolf says it like this. When Joshua's contemporaries had joined him in death, the new generation accelerated down the highway to destruction. They did not know God in a vital way. They had not seen the miracles their fathers had talked about. People, this is, this is, this is so key, people cannot thrive on the spiritual power of their parents. Each generation must personally experience the reality of God. Okay, so here. Growing up out west, I was born in Utah, grew up mostly in Washington State. One of the things that I loved most as a kid was sitting around a campfire listening to my dad tell Bigfoot stories. <laughs> yeah. The way he told them, you were absolutely convinced that they were true. I've heard those stories many times over the years, and I loved watching him tell those stories to my kids when they were little and just recently when he was here visiting to my grandkids. I have to tell you, those stories, they haven't changed. You would think that over the years they'd get embellished a little here and there, but no. When I was listening to him tell my grandson Roland and granddaughter Liana the same stories that he told my kids before that, me and my sister, those stories were almost word for word the same. But the thing is, no matter how much I want to believe them, I don't know for certain if they're true. I wasn't there. There's always that little seed of doubt. Was it really Bigfoot? In the back of my mind, sometimes I wonder if those things really happened at all. Or is he just telling stories, like the time he and my uncles told me and my other cousins, took a snipe hunting. You ever been on a snipe hunt? Yeah. They got a good laugh out of that. But somehow those Bigfoot stories, they're different. Each generation loves those stories, and they want to believe them. But the farther away you get from the actual events, the greater the doubt. I'm sure the little Israelite children, they love sitting around a campfire, listening to Caleb and Joshua and some of the other old-timers tell stories about how God stopped the flow of the Jordan when they entered the Promised Land, or how they marched around Jericho and the walls came down, and all they had to do was shout and blow their trumpets. Or, best of all, 
how with the Lord's help they defeated the giants that frightened those 10, others, those ten original spies, men so tall that they felt like grasshoppers next to them. I would have been a grasshopper next to them. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 3.11, it describes the bed that King Og of Bashan slept on. It was a bed made of iron, 13, nine cubits long, four cubits wide. That's over 13 feet long and six feet wide. That guy was huge. <laughs> I bet those were great stories. But unfortunately, unless you were there when those things happened, they eventually just become campfire stories. Fun to listen to, hard not to doubt, hard to take too seriously. In Judges, we have a 400-year track record of God saving a generation and then the people rejoicing and serving Him. Then the next generation comes up, they hear the stories, but they don't really believe. They fall into apostasy. Eventually, they end up harassed, oppressed, and subjugated by one enemy after another until finally, in desperation, they cry out to God. Then God, in His infinite mercy, raises up another judge who leads them back to Himself. The Bible's clear. It's the responsibility of each generation to tell the next generation of the great things that God has done. Not only the great things, as we understand them, but everything He's done. We need to give thanks every day for everything we have, from the air that we breathe to the clothes on our back, the food we eat, the people in our lives. If we narrowly miss out on some disaster, thank God. If a minor disaster does fall on us, thank God, it could have been major. You know, how many times have we just been driving down the road and, and drive by an accident and think, if I'd have been 15 seconds ahead of where I am now, that could have been me. Thank God. He works in our lives every day and we don't recognize it. Here's something. How about when we wake up in the morning? No matter how well we slept or badly we slept or what faces us that day, you're awake and alive. Thank God. Christians are to tell the whole world about God. That's the responsibility of all believers. Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you or has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Each generation tells the next. What they do with it, that's up to them. Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Now you have to understand that this is general wisdom. This isn't specific to every person. In general, if we train up our children, they won't depart from it. There's always exceptions. But our children should never be able to say, I didn't know. I didn't know. We tell them. This is how we pass the baton to the next generation. We plant the seeds. The harvest is God's. By God's grace, we must never quit 
praying for our children. I pray that we never get complacent about earnestly sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with our loved ones. The God that created the world and everything in it, the God that saved Noah and his family in the ark, the God that called Abraham to be the father of a chosen people and led those people first to Egypt to save them in a time of famine and 400 years later out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land. The God who sent his son Jesus Christ to die on a cross for our sins and then raised him from the dead three days later. That God. He's the same one who comes in the form of the Holy Spirit into each of us when we confess our sins and invite him in. The God who did all those things in both the Old and New Testaments, he's the same God alive today and calling you to place your trust in him. This is why communion is so important. It's not just a campfire story. It's a solemn occasion when we remember Jesus' death and resurrection, death, burial, and resurrection. May we never just go through the motions, knowing the story, but not really buying into the seriousness and truth of it. So, you may ask, how does this apply to me? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Here's the part where you get to fill in your bulletins. So how can I have a right relationship with God? Number one, take the time to evaluate my personal relationship with God. A, do I love God and his word? Do you pray and spend time with God? Do you read his Bible regularly? B, do I love Jesus and his church? Well, do you put Jesus first in your life? Do you belong to a gospel-centered church? C, do I want to follow and obey Jesus? Do you seek opportunities to share the gospel? Do you serve others with joy? Your answers to these questions, they'll give you a pretty good indication of how your personal relationship with God stands. Number two, understand what is necessary to become a child of God. If you want to be a child of God, this is what you need to do. Repent of your sins, ask the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive you, and then begin to live in faith, trusting that God has accepted you as his child. Back in 1668, Thomas Watson wrote, the two great graces essential to a saint in this life are faith and repentance. These are the two wings by which he flies to heaven. So, A, repentance. What's repentance? Admitting and turning from sin. Repentance is understanding that sin is offensive to God. And until it's paid for, sin is a barrier to the fellowship with God. We need to know in our hearts that God hates sin and will not tolerate it for long. He's patient, giving us the opportunity to, giving us the opportunity to repent, but ultimately we will face judgment. Repentance is acknowledging the wrongness of what we've done and willingly turning away from it and turning to God. 
Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All sin has consequences. Unforgiven sin leads to hell. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We need a redeemer to save us from our sin and the just punishment that sin requires. That redeemer is Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, a sinless, lived the sinless life that we cannot live. He died the death that we deserve, and he rose to give us eternal life that we could never earn. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We repent by acknowledging that we're sinners. We turn from our life of sin. Don't just apologize and offer a token sacrifice because you can't bribe God with something that's already his. God requires obedience, not sacrifice. After you've repented and asked for forgiveness, what's next? Faith. So, letter B. <clears throat> Faith is trusting in Christ alone. Faith comes when we believe that God loves us and has saved us from sin, a free gift to those who repent of their sin and place their trust in Jesus alone. We can't earn salvation by anything we do. It's all up to Jesus. Thank God he always keeps his promises because he did promise to save us if we repent and place our trust in him. That's faith. Isaiah 64, 6 says, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Some translations say filthy rags. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. We need to understand that while God has won the war against sin and hell, we still live in a fallen world, and there are daily battles against temptation and sin that we need to fight with God's help. Trust him to help you through those battles. We need to understand that God will be with us all the time. He's there to comfort us when we're discouraged, to soothe us when we're frightened, to encourage us when we're timid, correct us when we make mistakes, and best of all, he is there to forgive us when we confess. John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. If you repent of your sins and have faith in Jesus, you are saved, and you are adopted into the family of God as his child. After you're saved, you'll want to grow and learn more about Christ. So what do you do next? Number three, devote my life to maturing as a child of God. A, be certain of your own salvation. Have you repented of your sin and trusted Jesus? Are you saved? If you're unsure or if you have any questions at all, please come and talk to Pastor Wise, one of our elders, small group leaders. We'll gladly meet with you to pray and study God's word together. B, let everyone know about your Savior. If you're a new believer, someone who's recently come to faith in Christ, have you taken the first step of obedience and been baptized? 
Have you made public your faith in Christ? Baptism is a public statement about your faith, an outward expression of an inward conversion. Matthew 28, 19 says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Luke 12, 8 and 9. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. After reading those verses, I can't think of a good reason any believer wouldn't want to be baptized right away. If you're interested in getting baptized or have any questions, fill out a card in the back at the Welcome Center, give it to an usher, put it in the box, talk to Pastor Wise or any of our church members how you can take this important step of faith. C, grow with other believers as a Christian. Join a gospel-centered church and attend regularly to be spiritually fed by the Word of God. Get involved in a small group. Actively seek to know God and learn to trust Him and share with others what you're learning. That's where it gets a little real. Are there areas of your life that do not honor or glorify God and need to be changed? Pray for forgiveness. Work to change those sinful areas of your life. Ask for help if you need to. We all sin. We can't help it. We're human. Descendants of Adam, born into sin. But Christians are forgiven and earnestly seek to avoid sin as much as possible. Now, your study guide doesn't have letter D in it, but you can pencil this in. Help others to know, love, and follow Jesus. Look for ways to serve in church with others. Participate in Christ-centered activities and share life with others. If you're a mature believer, someone who's experienced God's grace and seen his faithfulness, have you been through the battles with him? And do you have the campfire stories to prove it? Share your testimony. Call together your children and your grandchildren and anybody who'll listen and tell them about God and what he's done in your life. Stay strong. Encourage others. Be an example and show them how to live for God. Without your help, the next generation, they might know about God, but not truly know Him. If God has delivered you through a difficult or painful situation, those are things that we want to keep private, we want to keep secret. But consider sharing it with someone who may be struggling with a similar trial. Your testimony is valuable. Maybe. Got to have this ready. Maybe you can't physically do something, but you can pray. Some of you may remember David Stanley. Dave was a dear friend, and he loved the Lord, and he really wanted to serve God. But due to his physical limitations, he couldn't do most of the things that he really wanted to help with. One day, we were talking, 
and he shared with me how the only thing he could do every day was pray through the prayer list that we put out each week. That's that skinny sheet that's on all your chairs. When he understood how important that it was, how much it meant to those on the list and their loved ones, he broke down in tears. He said that he'd been feeling bad, that all he could do was pray, but that if that's what God wanted from him, he'd keep doing it gladly. After that, I don't think a week went by when he didn't ask for a copy, the latest copy of the prayer list, and then he'd ask for updates on how those people were doing. That man, he taught me a lot about how to have a willing heart and how God can use us all. I can't wait to see him again in heaven. David was most certainly a child of God. So in summary, here's the heart of today's message. Psalm 145.4 One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Whether you have children or not, you have a testimony. New believers will look to current believers for advice and examples on how to live a Christian life. If believers don't pass on to the next generation, the knowledge, love, and fear of the Lord, we're doing them a great disservice. I pray that we will take every opportunity to share the gospel and teach not only our children, but anybody and everybody about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this record of your mighty works that you've provided us with. Thank you, Lord, for the family that you've provided all believers through your church. We love you, God, and we are so grateful that you first loved us. Lord, help us to love and encourage each other as we grow in your grace and love. Amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.